This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. I'm hopeful that once we get past COVID, we'll get back on track because everyone understands, or I hope everyone begins to understand the power of educating girls and women, the power of women working, the power of choice and opportunity. And so I'm hopeful that we will get back on track. I'm seeing hopeful signs in what we do here in Canada, through the private sector, through government, through not-for-profit organizations and individuals who really care about it. I'm starting to see it again in America. I'm hopeful for that. What keeps me going is that there are young women who are fighting against oppression and they're winning, but we need to see more of them win. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of our podcast, Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, and we have a really exciting season of content planned for you. Katya Shwarhan, who you met in the last episode, will be joining me later this season. I am so excited to introduce our first guest of season two, Farah Mohammed. I've gotten to know Farah over the course of this past year. To say she's an incredibly inspiring person and leader would be an enormous understatement. Farah is the founder of Girls 20, the former CEO of the Malala Fund, and former director of communications Anne McClellan, former deputy prime minister of Canada. Girls 20 is a globally active social enterprise that cultivates a new generation of female leaders through education, entrepreneurship, and global experiences and provides advice to G20 leaders on how to increase female labor force participation. Farah also launched Girls on Boards, an initiative that places young women on community-based boards so they begin to understand things like fiduciary responsibility. Farah has a truly profound story and you're going to learn more about how she got to where she is today. Hope you enjoyed the episode in our conversation. I am so thrilled to have our next guest on this podcast, uh, and this is the opening season two episode. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Farah. Thanks so much. Wow. Opening season. I don't feel any pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> really happy to have you on. Thank you again for being here. So we have so much you got to. I love for the listeners to really understand our guests' backstories and backgrounds that have impact and have helped shape their perspective and really their careers and outlooks. You were born in Uganda. You immigrated with your family to Canada. What were some of the early experiences in your life? And in looking back at some of the early moments, including your education, how has that shaped your perspective and your outlook on a lot of the work that you've done? I'm sure it's been a source of inspiration for the work that you've done, the Girls 20 that you founded at the Malala Fund, boards you served on. What were some of the early experiences that really had an impact on you? First of all, Jamie, thanks very much for having me on your show. I um, said yes to your show because you've got this contagious kind of personality where you want to chat with somebody. So thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, it's a good question. And, you know, I, I would say first off the bat, I came to Canada as a refugee, my sister, my parents, I was only two. And so a lot of the experiences that I have in me come from storytelling. They come from my parents and their experiences and my sisters. And I'll say at the outset that um, up until about 10 years ago, I really wouldn't talk about being a refugee. 
Um, I think I felt really uncomfortable with the idea. I don't, I didn't think I fully understood, but I knew people judge and that they see a certain thing. When people hear the word refugee, they probably have a automatic image. And so I started talking about it because I wanted people not to have that image anymore. Refugees are smart and they're entrepreneurial and they want to give back to the countries that they are, are welcome to. And, you know, there was a real conversation around Muslims. And so I started to really identify as uh, a refugee, as a Muslim, and it became a bigger part of who I am. So I'll tell you this. I remember, and I think this is what shaped me, is my parents came to this country and they felt so grateful, right? To the core of their being, they felt grateful that they were able to escape Uganda because at the time, Idi Amin, who was the ruler, gave Asian Ugandans 90 days to get out of the country. So imagine... Uh, trying to move your entire life in 90 days, you've got two kids. And so at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was the prime minister and he happened to be friends with the Aga Khan. They went to school together. And so, you know, when they say networks matter, there's a great example of a network that really mattered because the prime minister understood the peril and the problem if people stayed Asian Uganda and stayed in Uganda. And so they were welcome to Canada. And that's how we ended up in Canada. And so a lot of this shaped me. First of all, the understanding that we came here, we were grateful that we needed to give back. That's the first thing my parents instilled in us, this idea that we came to this country and we needed to find a way to give back to this country that welcomed us. You know, the idea that politics and relationships and networks matter. You know, we sat around uh, the dinner table when we were old enough and we'd talk about issues. And my mom and my dad made sure that we listened to the news, we read the papers, we'd talk about community issues. And the third thing was... A lot of what shaped me is this, yes, giving back, but being really, really intentional about giving back. And so I did choose to go into the area of empowering young women in particular through Girls 20. And then I had this unbelievable opportunity to work with Malala and continue that story. And so for me, I think being a refugee um, set me on a path of understanding that I didn't come to this country except for the fact that we were welcomed and that we really needed to do our part to give back, to be active, engaged, caring citizens of this country. You touched on reading papers. You, I'm sure, had access to a really great educational system, something Canada is notorious for. Did your parents emphasize the importance of education and what role do you think that played, especially in the early years of your life that has paid dividends and contributed to your success? Oh, huge, huge contributing factor. Um, I went through the public system in Canada. I'll tell you this. I mean, we lived in, in, a, in a city that was not that diverse. Probably at times my sister and I were the only people of color in our school. I think that's an interesting thing to, to state now because it's not at all the reality now in that same city. But education was at the very center of everything our parents wished for us, right? So not going to university or college was not an option. Um, what they did really encourage us to do was not to follow the path that everybody else thought they should follow. So if you're um, in a smiley kid at that time, your parents wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, right? And my parents said, look, we want you to go to school. We want you to pick the school you want to go to. I did think I was going to be a lawyer. I went to Queens University and my post-secondary education, so Queens and then Western, both in politics, shaped so much of how I ended up in my path. So, you know, if you think about it, I went to Queens, I wanted to be in law school, go to law school. I went for four years, did politics and fell in love with the idea of politics. I came out of there and I went around Europe. I was traveling around backpack style. I came back, 
there was an election on. I didn't have a job. I, mean, I started volunteering for Patty Torsney, 31 at the time, running in a riding no one expected her to win. And she won it. And so I was working on this campaign. So my, my time at Queen's, I was engaged in politics, though not formally. I was really raring to go and understanding how does politics work? How does it affect your life? And then I get an opportunity to actually work on a political campaign fresh out of university. So my education has been a big, big factor for me. Um, I think education has changed a lot since I was there. You know, there's a lot more um, opportunity to mix education with experience. And I think that's the secret sauce now. So education is a must, but if you can, if you can tack that on with really amazing experiences, whether they're volunteer internships, um, summer jobs, I think that is the secret sauce now. So when I think about hiring people, I want to know that they're able to do a podcast like you. I want to know that they've got a different dimension to them, not just education, but it is paramount, absolutely fundamental to my upbringing. Wow. When you landed this opportunity on the campaign and she won, were you someone who was dabbling in different areas because you were trying to, quote, figure it out and didn't really have a a grasp as to what you wanted to pursue career-wise? Or have you always had a fascination and interest in something within the realm of public policy, advocating for education and other fundamental rights? That's a great question. Makes me giggle a little bit because my parents will tell you that they knew I'd go into something with advocacy because I wouldn't stop talking about something I cared about or just stop talking maybe. (laughs) So I think the advocacy role was really something that took hold in me really. I don't know that I would have said that I defined it coming out of university that would be around gender or education, but for sure I wanted to fight for something. So I think that was kind of cool. So in terms of dabbling, I, you know, I do think that advocacy was a big part of who I am. Dabbling, I probably, I dabbled more with the idea of going to law school. And then I went and worked on this campaign and fell in love with politics. And so I didn't want to go to law school anymore. I took a year off then I went and did my master's and then Patty hired me. But the funny part is Coming out of university, as I mentioned, I didn't have a job and Patty had won this campaign and I thought for sure she would hire me. I was like, oh yeah, you know, we've become, you know, really good friends. I think she really likes me. I like her. I love what she stands for. And she didn't offer me the job. And so I sat down and I wrote her a letter and I explained to her why I thought she made a mistake. I did. I literally wrote her that she tells us to people all the time. And now Patty, I should also note, has become a very good friend, almost like a sister. Right. And so anyway, I write her this letter and I'm like, dear Patty, you know, I understand you had a difficult decision to make and all this stuff. And I write this letter and and I send it to her and we keep in touch. And a year later, um, she offers me the job because she knew I wanted to do my master. So back to your question about the importance of education. She knew I wanted to do my master's. She did not want me to go off track. And so she called me up at the the tail end of my master's and said, I'd like you to come and work with me. Now that, that is a fantastic mentor. That is incredible. Oh gosh, that's an amazing So I I think that she sort of kickstarted me in really looking out for other women. I mean, truly, she really looked out for me, right? And she still looks out for me to this day. That is an incredible story. You have a sister. You I do. Were raised by a father from other interviews you've given who champions women. Yes. And that is extremely powerful. You have given many interviews where you've talked about the importance of incorporating boys and men into the conversation about empowering boys and men 
about not isolating them from encouraging them to empower women. What is the importance of incorporating boys and men into the conversation? And why do you think that it's still somewhat taboo? What, what do we need to do in order to get to that point? Yeah, you know, Jamie, it's a good question um, about incorporating men and boys into the empowerment of girls and women. I think it's um, a question that is answered really differently depending on who you ask, what their experience has been, and maybe even their culture. So I was raised by two amazing parents. My mother and my father were, and still are two of my my biggest champions. I had a really uh, a very close relationship with my dad. My dad, he worked a lot. They, they worked crazy jobs when he first came here. And when I was going to university, um, you know, he'd come and he'd pick me up. And on the way back, we'd have really unbelievable conversations, three hour drives from Kingston to Toronto, uh, Burlington area. And we'd have these great conversations. And so, um, you know, my dad has always been somebody who said, you know, you should really never let anything stand in the way. And not only that, but you should really go after what you want, right? Like, I'm going to use the word aggressive. And I don't think the word aggressive is a bad word. I think he, he basically sort of said, don't let anything get in your way. For me, you are not going to, in a long-term sustainable way, empower girls and women by disempowering men and boys. It is not that kind of equation. I know a lot of men who, whether they're fathers or their brothers or their sons, whatever, they want to see the women in their lives succeed. I will say I've met a lot of men who become feminists and will call themselves feminists after they've had a daughter. And it's a really interesting thing because I see my dad, right? And I see how he is with other women. I see how he is with his, his wife and his daughters. He's caring. He's compassionate. He listens. He will, he will be the first to offer his help. And that's how I grew up. I, I launched while I was at Girls 20, a campaign called Fathers Empowering Daughters. And I launched it on Father's Day. And I was really lucky because there was no shortage in my life of men that I knew who were all about empowering their daughter. So from friends of mine who had daughters to Richard Branson and, and Zia Yousafzai, Malala's dad, who agreed to be part of this campaign. And they basically talked about how they empowered their daughters. You know, I then interviewed a bunch of um, daughters who talked about the power of their fathers. So, you know, young, young girls who, you know, they would not be where they are and women like Shakira. So it works both ways. I think um, if you find somebody who's a man who is willing to spend the time and really be a great mentor, I think you can gain a lot. If you find a best friend that happens to be a guy and you're a woman, you can gain a lot. So I really hope, and I think I see it in your generation, more and more of an acceptance that you need to have both genders working together for there to be sustainable, lasting, meaningful, measurable change to the empowerment of women and young women. That's amazing. I'm sure listeners can get the sense as to what I'm about to say. I think you are an incredible person. I think you've done so much good in this world for so many women and, and men. And your personality is something that is so infectious. Talk about infectious. I am deeply inspired by you and your career. You're going to make me blush. And that's really hard for a brown person to do. So you have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I believe that I'm sure in addition to great work ethic and um, many other uh, assets you can bring to the table, your personality has helped to get you to where you are today because you're able to empathize and and truly um, develop deep connections with people. I would love to hear 
from your perspective, why you believe you've been able to land all these different opportunities. Going back to Patty, I mean, networking is important. Finding champions and mentors is important. Mm-hmm. What else are key ingredients that allowed you to land prestigious opportunities and to create this successful path that you continued building for yourself? Well, so first of all, thank you for all the compliments, but it really truly is hard to make somebody like me blush, but I think you just managed to do that. But um, look, I think there are a couple things and I think more and more, this is important. I've always been just myself. You know, I think authenticity is absolutely key. If you're going to try to be somebody that you're not, you might get yourself in the room, but you're not staying in that room. Mm. Right. And so I think people really need to be comfortable with who they are. Number one, number two, I think you've got to surround yourself with people who will give you the straight up goods. I have friends who are like, Farah, you know, you got to cut that out. Or Farah, you got to, you know, put your hand up more. Or, like, you know, you got to have both people who are going to keep you honest and people who are going to encourage you. And so that's another thing is, is building a network of people who will have your back is absolutely essential because there are opportunities that present themselves and you might have imposter syndrome or you might have something, you know, they have this thing called tall poppy syndrome. You need to have the confidence in yourself for sure, Jamie, but it does really help when you have other people who are encouraging you. So be your authentic self, you know, surround yourself with people who will rally around you when you need it. And then the other part is, I think I'm just like a little bit crazy and equal parts crazy and creative. And I think people like to be around that kind of personality. You know, I don't hold back. Um, Sometimes that's gotten me in a little bit of trouble. Um, But more often than not, I think people appreciate, maybe even expect that I'm going to say what's on my mind. I'm always going to be respectful about it, but I'm not going to hold back. You know, I'm not the person you hire if you want to hear yes, 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 yes. Right. I'm going to be very honest. And I've been put in positions with bosses who I think counted on that. And when you're that honest and, you know, I think want the best for the people that are helping you. Um, I think that only comes back in spades for you. I think it, it means that people can trust you. So be authentic, be somebody who's trustworthy, be loyal. And if somebody tells you a secret, keep it to yourself. Like I think about the people that I've worked with and the things that they've told me. Um, and I will take those to the grave because they trusted me. Be somebody who people can trust. Right. Great. I think it's pretty simple great advice. So there's a confidence gap. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a skills gap. And when we look at certain industries and disciplines, take STEM, for example, we see that there are discrepancies in numbers of women entering versus men entering the industry and, and the professions that are associated with that. What can we do as a society, what conversations can we continue having? What biases can we try to kick out of the door um, to ultimately change the numbers, change the trajectory to empower more women to go into these industries, these fields that for so long have often intimidated them, have held them back, have made mm-hmm. them feel like they don't belong? You know, it's a complicated question and there's a really complicated answer. But for me, um, let me try to do this as succinctly as I can. First of all, I think it does stem from education and the fact that we need to have young women going into paths that they would not normally consider. So we need to change the way that even guidance counselors suggest what um, girls go into, what young women, what do they pursue in their education? We've got to make sure that 
in the place where you are, your home, your home environment, and in high school, that you get encouraged to take a different path that you may not otherwise consider. So you've really got to have that from the start. Then when they get in, we've got to make sure they've got the supports around them. So when you're in engineering school, and it may seem very macho, you may not feel like you fit. So there needs to be other things in schools that allow you to be able to express that, to find different ways to deal with it. You can't just say you're in that, deal with it. It doesn't work that way. We see lots of people who leave that, that's, um, that area of education because they don't feel like they belong. Then when you get into the workforce, right? So you see women go into the workforce, men go into the workforce. There's a gender pay gap, which is absolutely unacceptable in this day and age. If you go in with the right, with the go with the same education, the same skills, you should be paid the same. Shouldn't matter what body part you have. That's it. Simple. So we need to make sure there's transparency around what people are getting paid. And then we need to make sure there's absolute transparency around bias in hiring. So I'm an advocate for never asking. I mean, I really think we should do blind um, C, uh, CVs. So no name. So that takes care of ethnicity um, and gender. Um, I don't think we should put dates of when people graduate because there's a thing around age, right? So I think we need to do everything we can when it comes to the hiring process that we eliminate all the potential bias that exists. And then when you're in the workforce, things like making sure there's a women's leadership group, but not just women on them, their own, right? But women and men working on issues that matter to gender or any of the other issues that have come up, whether it's BIPOC related or it's um, gay and lesbian related, it doesn't matter to me. If there is a diversity issue, you need to do everything you can to make sure these people feel welcome. And I say that as a woman who's Muslim, you know, having been working in, in challenging environments, I've always felt like as a leader, it was my responsibility to create safe spaces and brave spaces. So also it's about leadership. If you have a leader who tolerates behavior that is just not acceptable, you have to challenge that. It is not going to change unless leaders are challenged. So there's a lot of things, but we have to start early. We have to really encourage young women to pursue educational areas they may not otherwise pursue. And then we've got to give them all of the things around them that will make them stay in that pursuit of that education that's maybe STEM or whatever the case may be. And once they get into the workforce, our job's not done. Just because they got the job, you don't just get to say, okay, you're in it, now you're on your own. And we've seen how women drop out. Things like childcare actually matter. People who don't think that childcare is an economic issue need to really put, pull their head out of the sand because it absolutely is. Things like um, elder care, that matters because it falls to a woman, mostly than a man. So we have to look at all the different pressures of society and make sure that we're doing everything we can to surround that person with the, all the tools that they need to stay in the workforce, to be able to excel in the workforce. And then the last thing is, you know, this whole um, statement about you can't be it if you can't see it. I actually really believe that. You know, let's look at Kamala Harris. Perfect example. Now a bunch of young women hopefully understand that they could be the vice president or president of the United States of America because they see it. Asian women, um, black women, whatever, they see it. So I think we have to have more models of success that look different. Not just talk about diversity, show diversity. Like put your money where your mouth is and don't do it in a superficial way. And don't do it because of a quota, though sometimes I can argue that quotas work. Do it because it makes economic sense, because diversity really does make a change and, and has an impact on the bottom line. All of those economic reasons, the diversity matters. Stop talking about it. Do something about it. I'm really tired of seeing boards that are still not 
uh, gender equal, they're not diverse in terms of ethnicity or age or experience, we cannot move ahead in a corporate capitalistic society if we don't include everyone. And we really have to accelerate that pace of change. It's often easy to say, uh, especially if you're in a, a certain position where you're reporting to someone, you're led by someone who doesn't necessarily share the same or similar values as you, who doesn't stand up to disgusting rhetoric, who who tolerates abhorrent behavior. And to many, especially listeners on uh, to this podcast, it can be difficult to advocate for yourself, to stand up for yourself, especially when you find yourself in situations as such. As a woman of color, have you struggled with standing up for yourself or advocating for yourself, feeling like um, you don't deserve the seat at the table? And how have you been able, if so, to overcome such thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would be lying if I said I didn't ever struggle, right? I think everyone struggles. They struggle in different ways. I have, um, I think maybe because of the way that I was grown up, or maybe it's because I worked in politics and I was surrounded only by female bosses. I think that's a big part of it. I've always felt like it's my obligation and responsibility to speak up for myself and for others. I take it really, really seriously. And so I don't know that I would say that I've struggled. I thought I, I think I've thought a lot about how I've how when I've had to, uh, challenge someone how I would do it. You know, I'd, I've had to think about the consequences of doing it. I've had to think about how is it going to be coming from me, a woman of color? Um, you know, this is a conversation we're all, you know, happy to have now, but 10 years ago or even five years ago, you know, you really have to think about how you're coming across. And so, look, I think loads and loads of people struggle. I know a lot of people who struggle. I have a lot of young women who come to me and say, look, you know, my workplace is really toxic. What am I going to do about it? And I'm really careful. I don't, I don't go out and bulldoze it. I say to them, try to talk to HR, first of all. Try to um, see if other people are feeling the same way. Try to have an honest conversation with your boss that says, you know, maybe over a coffee when we were in COVID period, that's outside of the office. You know, um, another thing that one of my bosses taught me was, when you're having a conversation about your salary or performance, try to get out of the office because there's a power imbalance. So what I would say is if, if you're trying to make a point or you're trying to make something better and you're doing it with your boss or somebody who's leading you or even a colleague, right? Um, try to do it in a safer space. Try to do it in a place where there is no power imbalance. You're not sitting across the desk from somebody that's their office. Whenever I've talked to somebody about their performance, I've really made sure um, that I've either done it on a coffee, a lunch, over a glass of wine, because it's a difficult conversation to have. It goes both ways. If you want to challenge somebody, I think the best thing you can do is say, hey, can we go for a walk? Or, you know, try to make sure that it's not coming across as a finger pointing or figure wagging. It's really, I'm doing this because I'm worried, I care, uh, that I'm seeing things that I'm cool with, and I really want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I think that's the best advice I can give. I will, again, point out that I've had amazing people who've created the space for me also to be able to speak my mind, right? And so also, if you're a leader and you're listening to this podcast, be really thoughtful, be intentional about creating space so people can, without repercussion, come to you and say, you may not know this, but, and that will help everyone. It's tough. It's tough, but it's necessary. That was amazing advice. You founded and unbelievable organization called Girls 20. Girls 20 is a 
globally active social enterprise that cultivates a new generation of female leaders through education, entrepreneurship, and global experiences, and provides advice to G20 leaders on how to increase female labor force participation as it is key to economic growth. A lot of points in that one sentence. <laughs> how did you develop this concept? And I would love to hear more about some of the unbelievable good that has emerged since the founding. Sure. So first of all, I think, you know, when I said earlier, I have equal parts creative and crazy. This is where the Girls 20 stuff comes in. So I was working with Belinda Stronic at the time, and uh, we had said, we're going to do something for young women, but we're not going to be duplicative and we're not going to be competitive with others. We want to do something that's really unique, that's really going to disrupt how things are being done. Now, at this time, it was 2010. Not a lot of people were talking about female labor force participation. In fact, Girls 20 was one of the first to talk to the G20 about it. And remember, the G20 was set up all because of the economics, the fallout. But look, the idea was this. If you want women to join the workforce, then you need to cultivate that at a younger age. I went to sleep one night. I was stressed because I couldn't come up with an idea. I just read the paper and it just said Toronto will be hosting the G20. I went to bed in the middle of the night. I went girls 20. And so I went to Belinda, totally open-minded woman. She wanted to do something that connected politics with economics. And this was it. So we built a team of advisors. We took them out for dinner. There's a little bit of wine flowing. We gave them this idea and they all said, yes, it's fantastic. They helped us come up with the different elements. And so I actually launched it for Belinda Stronic and we incubated all the programs there. And then two years later, I said, okay, I love this. It's got to go solo. And that's when I took it solo. So I created the idea and then I amplified it and scaled it up. And I really, truly believe it's one of the best things I will ever have done with my life, mostly because all the young women I've met through there, you cannot believe how inspirational, how amazing, how do-gooders they are, but do-gooders with a real passion for making a change in their own communities for girls and women who will follow them. So we stalked the G20, we stole their idea about the G20, and then we went back to them and we said, if you are serious about the GDP of your country, you have to have all of your cylinders on fire. And one of those things is labor force and half your labor force is women. So get on with it. And so we really started to curate this conversation around the importance of female labor force participation, starting with young women. The other thing we did with Girls 20, before I left for Malala Fund, I launched a program called Girls on Boards. And this places young women on community-based boards. So they start to understand fiduciary responsibility. What does it mean to be on a board? How do you make decisions? Helping make decisions that are going to impact the community for the betterment of young women. And so we created this program. And what it does is it places a young woman who has been trained and vetted and mentored on a community board for at least one year. So now she's building her network. And I would say that we went from having a global summit to really focusing on getting young women in the actual space and place where they can make a difference for themselves, but also for their community. And it's, it's been a very successful program. What are some of the things that have come out of it? There are so many stories I can tell you of some of the delegates, but there, there have been delegates who've come from places like Indonesia and India have gone back and set up their own foundations with the help of Girls 20. So they can have women, uh, or young women rather, um, learn how to read in slums, or they can have young women really understand what their path is gonna be. They do STEM-related educational learning. Like there's so many things that they have done. Some of them help rewrite curriculum. So you know when you're in school and you never hear about women, but you hear about all the men doing X, Y, and Z? She helped rewrite curriculum so that there would be more women in that curriculum. These are young women between the ages of 18 and 23 through the Global Summit who did that. And not only that, 
Imagine when you're 18 and you have now a global network of young women in 20 something countries. I'm 50 and I have that now, but imagine that at 18. And so they work together and the camaraderie, the network they've built, helping each other is just unbelievable. And that was not by design, by the way, that was by default. We, we didn't at the time understand what a powerful alumni we were putting together. And now I see them, you know, meeting when they travel, they call each other up and say, I'm coming. And even from the different cohorts, you know, it's been 10, 10 years of this. They really do stand up for each other. It's really incredible. You have a quote that you've given. You are someone who, I hate to use the word regret, but you're someone who looks back at some of your experiences and say, I took risk later in life. How important is it to encourage young women to take risks early on in their careers? So important. I think that um, your generation in particular expects an ROI in terms of on time. So when you put your time into something, you want to see something come out of it, right? I think that's very true of your generation. And if you're not going to see that if you don't take risks, you play by the sidelines. But I would say it's educated risk, right? It's informed risk. So I am somebody who is didn't really see myself as a risk taker until I did the girls 20 stuff and went solo to be completely honest. And then I felt like, wow, I'm really comfortable with this, but I had informed myself. I had educated myself. I had spoken to others. So I think it's incredibly amazing if you can become comfortable with risk, but also that comfort will come with experience. So give yourself the time to actually experience what it is to be in a risk mode. You know, I didn't jump on this bandwagon where everyone's like, you learn from your failures. Yeah, you do. And I understand the whole failure culture. I get that. But you're also going to have unbelievable successes. And you're going to have days when you feel like you're on this path by yourself. You have to allow yourself to soak that in. The other thing I say to people, and I wish I would have listened to all of the people who said this to me, slow down. Like, it's okay to soak it all in. Don't worry about the next thing all the time. But when you're in a risk mode, sometimes you do. And that just is human nature. So I can say that to every single person that I ever meet to slow down and soak it in. But you do learn to slow down, to take it in, to make note of the stuff that worked and try to recalibrate when stuff doesn't. In 2017, you became the CEO of the Malala Fund. You worked and have become very close to arguably one of the most famous, most powerful women on the planet. How did you meet Malala and what was that experience like? Well, first, let me add, you know, she's also, I think, one of the most engaging people because she really cares about what she's doing. A lot of people would have experienced what she experienced, the attack by the Taliban, survived it and maybe just led a very quiet life. She was shot in the head by the Taliban on her way from school on a school bus. And think about just what kind of person would then put them back themselves back in the spotlight to fight for girls who were just trying to do what she was trying to do, which was go to school. I met Malala. She doesn't know this, but I met her at a Skull World Forum, and she was a recipient of an award, and I was in this, the row behind her. And so I said a quick hello while everyone was getting out, and, you know, you could feel her presence. You could really feel her presence. And then, you know, fast forward, and there's a search on for a CEO. My very good friend, Lisa Witter, said you should apply and I said, okay. And I remember meeting Malala the first time. I had gone through a couple of different interviews and I was brought to London uh, because she lived in Birmingham. And I was there with members of the board and Malala it was the first time I met her. And I thought I would be really crazy nervous, but she just made me feel so comfortable. 
she said, hello, my name is, hello, I'm Malala. <laughs> I thought it was really cute. I'm like, of course you're Malala. And I said, I'm Farah. And we sat down. It was the typical interview. And then I went back to my hotel room because I'd flown overnight. I passed out because I was exhausted. And I got a phone call from the recruiter who said, so you're in the top three and Malala would like to meet with you tomorrow. And I had to fly back for a speaking engagement. So I said, I, I would love to. So I did the speaking engagement, which is the evening, but I, I, I had to say, look, can I meet with her first thing in the morning? So I got into a car, went to Birmingham, pouring rain, and she welcomed me into her home where I met her mother and her brothers and her father. I had already met her father because he was part of the interview process. And we sat and it was like I had known her forever. It was an incredible working experience with this young woman who just has fought so hard for others. I was surrounded by a team of unbelievable people who, again, just work so hard for girls they will never, ever meet. I had the opportunity to go with Malala to places like Iraq and Brazil to meet with girls who are fighting against patriarchal societies where child marriage is their option and they fight against it. They run away in their wedding dresses into the hills to escape child marriage. This is something that I will never forget, the opportunity that Malala gave me to help her and her family return to Pakistan. She hadn't been home in five years. And part of the reason I went there was because I thought, you know, this is a young woman who needs to go back home. And maybe as a Muslim woman, woman as, as for the CEO, I can go back and help negotiate that. And so I am absolutely will never, ever forget for as long as I live watching that family return to Pakistan and how they felt, how emotional it was. And, you know, I remember coming back home and talking to my parents about it and then realized as I was talking to my mom that she never got to go back to Uganda. And it was really poignant for me. But working with Malala, there's no experience like it. She's funny. People don't understand that she don't see her humor. She's very, very funny, very witty, incredibly bright, always reading, always reading something and always saying, Farah, you should read this. <laughs> and I would. I'll also say that I remember being very homesick, sitting in my flat in London and Malala's parents inviting me home for lunch or dinner and I'm so grateful to them for that, for being warm and inviting. And even when my parents came to visit me in London, they invited my parents to their home in Birmingham for lunch. And so it was not just joining a team. It was really having the ability to get to know this incredible family. What a story. That was so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You have had a front row seat in seeing a lot of the suffering, the brutality, the oppression of women's rights, women trying to seek an education, given all that you've bared witness to, what are you most hopeful of and seeing the progression that we're making globally? I'm hopeful that we'll go back on track. COVID has really impacted a lot of women and young girls. There are a lot of girls who would have been going into school and they're not going into school, but I'm hopeful that once we get past COVID, we'll get back on track because everyone understands, or I hope everyone begins to understand the power of educating girls and women, the power of women working, the power of choice and opportunity. And so I'm hopeful that we will get back on track. I'm seeing hopeful signs in what we do here in Canada, through the private sector, through government, through not-for-profit organizations and individuals who really care about it. I'm starting to see it again in America. I'm hopeful for that. What keeps me going is that there are young women who are fighting against oppression and they're winning, but we need to see more of them win. And that's what I'm hopeful for. If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? I would say my best piece of advice is, I know it's tough right now for those who are graduating, they're looking for jobs. I know it's really tough, 
but hang in there. Things will get better. Make sure that you surround yourself with people who will rally around you. Make sure that you're still reading, that you're still learning. Take courses if you can that are free. There's lots of them out there now. Try to make sure that you're engaged every single day. Don't let yourself get disengaged because it'll be hard to become engaged again. And there will be a time when there'll be more and more engagement. We need people who are young and vibrant and educated and curious to be in this game post-COVID and we can't afford to lose you. So stay engaged, try to stay optimistic, make sure you take care of your health. I myself am a COVID cliche now because I got a puppy and an indoor bike. Uh, <laughs> but I had to do that for myself and recognize that's something I had to do. Thank you so much for coming on. The- Thank you so much. And let's circle back. Absolutely. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our pod, let me know. Connect with and reach out to us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition. A special shout out goes out to our entire team who helps make this podcast possible. Max Onderdonk, Jade Taylor, Julia Chow, Katia Schmurhan, Libby Bryant, Mia Givens, Valentina Velasquez, Hayden Geinder, Jessica Helfenstein, Hannah Kotel-Altman, and Kate Cox. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you then. Take care, everyone.